Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Mark Silvestro uh, has... Is staging, or rather restaging, his one-man play, The Will to Be, at La Mama in the La Mama Courthouse Theatre in Drummond Street, Carlton. And just before we chat to Mark about the show, my traditional disclaimer, whenever I talk about anything related to La Mama, yes, I am the volunteer chair of the Committee of Management. I do not benefit financially from my involvement with La Mama or by promoting La Mama shows. I just talk about them because they're good. Hello, Mark. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. How are you, Richard? Very well, very well indeed. Thanks for joining me on the program. Now, The Will to Be is, as I said, it's a solo show set in the early 60s about uh, an academic grappling with desire, grappling with his sexuality. Why did you choose to set this in in the early 60s? I mean, we tend to think of the 60s as the era of peace and love and freedom and happiness and the Stonewall riots, but of course, that all came quite later in this in the decade it did i thought oh well let's put it earlier before that all those main uh, really well-known i suppose events and that and the the um the stereotype of the era kind of happens because there was so much happening before that and um i wanted to explore that what was happening before that but then also what people's experiences were before all those those movements really came into effect so i suppose yeah 62 i thought yeah let's just stick a bit earlier and and um all the, yeah, the, the peace and love and, and the activism of the 60s, 70s. Now, it's a particularly interesting year to choose because I, as I recall, around that time we have the death of a gay academic uh, who uh, was bashed by police and thrown into the Torrens River in Adelaide and drowned, uh, thus kick-starting, I guess, the, certainly South Australia's gay rights uh, uh, protests and politics, South Australia being one of, I think, the first Australian state to legalise homosexuality. Uh, but the, the sheer fact that an academic could be effectively murdered because he was queer really tells us all we need to know about the early 60s and the the pressure on homosexual men and women to stay in the closet. Of course, and that was actually in the early 70s. So that's even... T- Oh. I, I think it was. I think it was seventy one when. Um, when uh, Duncan oh, what was died. His name? Duncan. Yeah. I'm yeah, out was, by a um, decade. Yeah, and so when you think if that could happen nine years later, still in the state that you know ended up decriminalising it as being the first one in Australia. So yeah, I think the sixties. It was when I first wrote the play. I was very unaware of a lot of history and a lot of dates, and so I went. Let's just put it in the sixties for now. And I wanted to put it well before before anyone overseas had started, like before before England and the US had really started legalising things. So I went, let's keep it at 62 when things are re- everywhere around the world. It's very much um, a lot bubbling away, a lot ready to happen, but nothing quite yet coming into the, the public's eye, I suppose. It's a solo show in which you play uh, the academic in question who's, amongst other things, uh, he is married, as were many gay men in that period. The the pressure of society to stay closeted, to not even acknowledge or explore their sexuality uh, would often force men 
taken into uh, uh, marriage to uh, an, an unwitting woman who would often then be emotionally scarred by the experience of discovering that her husband was not the man she believed. But he, the character is, as the play progresses, yes, he's... Uh, there's a, a Shakespeare production involved of Romeo and Juliet, so uh, the the kind of the pangs and power of love, and he is experiencing love himself, perhaps for the first time. Perhaps for the first time, and and I suppose then the the other issue in it, when we look at it from a contemporary perspective, is that the person who he's he's fallen in love with is one of his students and so the student you know is in his third year and that but this is this is long before any kind of employment law when it was anything um to do with uh, someone in a position of power being in a relationship with someone so I suppose the focus still is very much on the, the sexuality side of it but it's yeah it's a student and a student who approaches him because you've got this um almost this safe haven on the university campus um, in terms of the students and what they're willing to explore. And, and here comes this, this young student, Henry Rosebery, and opens up these, these possibilities and, and changes the thinking, ironically, of his, his teacher to, um, I suppose, realise who he actually is and, and to own who he is through that process. Now, there's a fascinating tension to explore there. Through contemporary eyes, the idea of a relationship between uh, a university lecturer and, a, and one of their students is absolutely taboo. We recognise now that there mm. is a power imbalance there. Historically, Very much, uh, yeah. there is uh, a different uh, tension at play between the need to stay closeted to protect one's career, one's future, uh, versus the need to uh, follow one's heart and be true to oneself. There's, it's a really intriguing emotional mix that you've kind of welded together into this play. It is. It's like, because you watch it now today. Well, I suppose I've never watched it, so I'm in it but, but I imagine you, you watch it and you, you go back to the era and you're invested in these two characters, but then you at times can't help but drop into now and you go, hang on, what's actually happening? But then you have to sometimes go, okay, we're in the 60s and this is... Um... But then at the same time, I don't think a lot of people have an issue with that side of it based on when it's set and what the actual core of the message is underneath it in terms of, of yeah, of what that message is. Now, Mark, you originally staged this production at uh, the Butterfly Club in their downstairs theatre, I believe, uh, and right. uh, that was in two th- for Melbourne Fringe in 2019. Sadly, I missed the production. I was overseas. Uh, one of the first fringe, I think the first fringe I missed for about 20 or 21 years. You then remounted it at the Adelaide Fringe early last year, where um, one of the reviews I saw uh, of the Will to Be four and a half star review when you uh, staged it at Bakehouse Theatre. Uh, so it's you've had the, the opportunity to to tighten, to road test, to, to remount. How has the play evolved since you first wrote it and first performed it? Have you gone back and rewritten, redrafted the script, for example, or is this still pretty much the play that it originally was? There's, no, there's definitely changes. That's what I love about touring stuff and, and performing stuff that I write myself because I can have that process on the way and so I can keep remounting it and re-exploring things so there's look the story is very much the same but then there's just things that have been tightened in terms of yeah just script wise word choice things in the beginning and the end but otherwise it's essentially the same play just getting stronger each time so 
even 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 for this one compared to Adelaide, you know, in twelve months, just the way that time and I suppose the life I've lived and how that informs the text, it kind of just goes on its new new little journey each time it you know pops up again at a different season. I'm chatting with writer, actor, and co-producer Mark Salvestro about his play The Will to Be, which is being staged as part of Midsummer Festival at the La Mama Courthouse Theatre in Drummond Street, Carlton, and I'll give the dates and booking details in a moment. But I am intrigued, Mark. This is, uh, to my knowledge, your second solo show. What is it about a one-man play that so fascinates you as both a writer and as an actor? It's because I, I get asked this a lot, and so I'm, I'm still trying to figure that out. But I think what it is, it's the the relationship. There's two main reasons. There's the relationship with the audience that I have, and that that intimacy with the audience. They're usually quite small spaces that I perform in. There's a lot of direct address. And so that involves eye contact. It involves a, um, a, a almost more so of an energy in that in that actor audience relationship than a normal ensemble type theatre piece requires. But then what I love is the way I can use language to transport the audience to different times and places and create characters and and sometimes um, dialogue in particular scenes, but it's all used with the language and guiding the audience along. But then finding that fine balance between what can I do, what do I need to do creatively to, to, to guide the audience and what can I leave up to them, to their imaginations and, and, how much trust can I put in the audience? And as I've discovered over the years of writing these shows, you can put a whole lot of trust in the audience. <laughs> and everyone just has these incredible imaginations and I just have to suggest something and then they go there and it's wonderful. It's, I just, yeah, that's what I love about solo storytelling. Now, as we mentioned, the will to be... Uh there is a, a production of Romeo and Juliet happening effectively off stage, which is part of the production. And, and I understand that you've weaved some of Shakespeare's words into the text itself because we have an academic, a university lecturer who is helping a young student in a, a theatre production of Shakespeare. I'm curious as to which works of Shakespeare you've referenced and woven into the text. I'm wondering, for example, whether some of the sonnets, perhaps sonnet number 20, uh, in which is dedicated to the master mistress of my passion, for example, make an appearance in the play? It doesn't. I really wanted to get into the sonnets, but then I I was thinking, surprisingly, a lot of the sonnets, a lot of the Shakespeare references in it, initially I went, okay, what are the ones which are reeking of queer themes or (laughs) a little bit more, uh, which is obviously so much, but the ones that really lended themselves to the play in the end were just ones that just fell into the, the circumstances of, of, of what I was trying to describe at that time. So it wasn't particularly in terms of, well, I guess there's the Romeo and Juliet stuff in terms of the relationship, but then the other pieces are Hamlet and Richard III, and I've got, I've got Queen Margaret from Henry IV and, um, and then Henry V, and things that like, I didn't expect all these histories to make it into it, but they have because there was something about the words and the need I suppose I went from the perspective of as as William, as the academic, what do I need to say right now? And the words just from those particular plays just popped up. And I, or, or I would <laughs> go to this Google mode and go, okay, what Shakespeare play like is this? Or I'd go through my complete works and I'd go, okay, there's this and this and this and this scene. And, and 
yeah, the histories kind of dominate. That mixed with Romeo and Juliet, well, you know, given the, the sonnets in the next rewrite. Given that you've written a history play with uh, a bit of uh, uh, romance at its heart, it kind of makes sense that those are the Shakespearean plays that uh, have uh, kind of manifested themselves into the piece. Uh, La Mama Theatre is presenting The Will to Be, written, performed and co-produced by my guest Mark Silvestro. Uh, it's on as part of Melbourne's Queer Cultural Festival Midsummer. Midsummer itself runs from the 19th of April until the 5th of May. The season for The Will to Be at La Mama's Courthouse Theatre, 349 Drummond Street, Carlton, uh, is running from the 19th until the 23rd of April, Mondays and Tuesdays, 6.30pm, Wednesdays at 8.30pm, Thursday at 6.30pm and Friday at 8.30pm. Tickets are $30 or $20 concession and you can book by calling 9347 6948 or going to www.lamama.com.au. to see Mark Silvestro's The Will to Be, which won the Best Theatre Weekly Award at the 2020 Adelaide Fringe. Mark, thank you so much for joining us, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the production myself. So thanks for joining me on the program. Triple R. My next guest has just joined me on the line. Euron Lifshitz is the artistic director of Circa, the globally successful Brisbane circus company. Uh, doing something a little bit different at the moment, though. Uh, Euron, this is not the first kids' show that Circa have made, but you've definitely made a, kind of a family-friendly show in conjunction with the UK animation studio Ardman. How did this collaboration come about? Hi, Richard. Uh, look, it came about through the wonderful producer, Andrew Kay, who first introduced us to Ardman and the idea of Shaun the Sheep. Uh, he didn't go on with the project and uh, ha- handed it to us. And we went to Bristol, Sean Comerford, our executive director, and I on separate trips, went to Bristol. And what we realised was that Bristol and Brisbane are both kind of B cities, and that means we're a little bit off the track, we're a little bit uh, out of the mainstream, and so kind of new forms of slightly kooky, weird artistic life seems to evolve in both of them, and there was a real natural connection between us and Ardman. And then we, you know, we spent two years trying to figure out how to get a claymation, much-beloved TV show into a contemporary circus and do that with authenticity and joy. Now, authenticity is a, uh, a key word to use there, I think, because there are many shows that adapt existing uh, intellectual properties, uh, particularly uh, kids' shows, which then end up being a fairly cynical exercise. Uh, Circa is not a company I associate with cynicism. I associate Circa with exquisite art and remarkable acrobatics. So how did you then merge the the circus arts uh, that Circa do so well with the claymation and warmth and humour that Ardman demonstrates so beautifully in whether it's the the Wallace and Gromit films or uh, uh, with Shaun the Sheep? Look, I think it was one of the hardest creative things I've ever done. It really, it almost broke me several times. What, What we... What we did, I mean, the stages, I guess, were to bring in a, an extraordinary creative team, Jethro Woodward on music, uh, Dan Potter on set, uh, kind of uh, a, a series of really long development periods, um, 
And what we did was we, we really made the show in a way that feels like it's not a it's, it's absolutely not a kind of cynical suit show or you know show to TV show to stage kind of adaptation. It's genuinely a, a, an authentic response to Shaun the Sheep on the stage. It, it picks up the wild surrealism of its humour as well as its warmth and, and transcribes that into acrobatics, but also into like there's live projection. The whole the, the second half goes into this kind of Euro Evo Van Hove live streaming kind of world and it, it does all these kind of really interesting theatrical twists and turns. One of the things that fascinates me about circus work is the way that you effectively choreograph circus arts to convey emotion, drama, often uh, using classical music, for example, to, uh, to the, and the, I guess the, the contrast between exquisite music and incredibly skilled acrobatics is a potent mixture in and of itself. But humour is not necessarily a key factor in some of the, the circus shows I've seen. There, there has been there have there has been kind yeah. of humour there as well. I'm not trying to suggest that the work is no, po faced. Fair call. Fair but, call. Yeah. But yeah, no, we can yeah, sorry, guys. I was just going to say that. Talk to us then about kind of deliberately evoking humour, evoking, uh, evoking a, a kind of uh, a different kind of emotional and physical response from the audience, as opposed to the 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 work that you normally make, which, for example, avoids applause breaks throughout the show. Yeah, look, I, I think there's two things that I should say as kind of I think it's a really fair cop. I mean, I think we're we're known as probably the the company that that consistently risks taking entertainment out of circus. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we hope that's not true, but in this case we're kind of, you know, proactively putting it back in. Um, I generally don't work with humour a lot because it's not my natural artistic key signature, and I make most of the shows we do. So uh, my, my signature is very much kind of collapse and and disruption. But the other thing is, I find directing comedy incredibly difficult. It's so cognitively challenging. It makes, you know, tragedy's kind of easy, but comedy is just, you have to be so mentally alert that I'm, and I'm just a bit too lazy for it most of the time. So this was a really big, this was a really big challenge for me. Luckily, we have a very funny cast, very good at humour. Uh, we were joined, for, ensemble members were joined by a couple of guest artists, uh, including Nelson Smiles, who's come out of, a, out of working, he's an Australian trained at NICA, has come out of working at Cirque du Soleil as a clown, and is a, very, is a brilliant acting acrobat of circus performer. And that's a, a fairly rare skill at that level. And it, you really notice his, he plays the farmer. You really notice his impact on the show um, and, and how it supports the rest of the cast and I think uplifts it. We also, um, we just built comedy into the scenarios, into the gags, into the structure of the, the, the show. And people laugh. And that's, it's, it's amazing sitting in a room full of, you know, one, two thousand children, adults, grandparents, everyone, and they're roaring with laughter. And the thing that I, one thing that I love the most about the show is that I get pretty typical comments of, I brought the grandparents, I brought the little kids, I wasn't sure what to do with the teenagers, so I dragged them along, <laughs> and we all loved it. 
And and that for me was kind of because this is not a this is not a simple show. This it's very easy, it's designed to be understood by the youngest of audiences, but it is absolutely it goes. You know, there is a there is a scene in which a in which a sheep shears herself in a burlesque act. There is a scene in which the characters uh, try and pretend to do a claymation animation and live stream their bad plasticine models to convince the farmer that they are, that there's a circus going on. Like, the, the world goes very meta and very strange. The, as I mentioned, uh, one of the other signatures of your shows is that uh, you, in fact, when I saw a circus show last year with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, I think there was even a slide that came up that said, please do not applaud until the end of the show, or, <laughs> yeah. or words to that effect. Yeah, and, that was me going, can you just, you just got to listen to the music, people. Like, there's no way we can just have a pause in the middle of Beethoven's ninth. That was, you know. But And this is something that circus struggles with because circus audiences have almost been trained to applaud at the, at the drop of a hat. If somebody um, uh, tumbles dramatically or creates a three-high, audiences, audiences are used to the ta-da moment and circus is training audiences to sit and wait and let the, the, the dramatic tension build and applaud at the end of the show. What has it been a challenge for you to be able to to say for this show? No, I have to let the audience express themselves. There there needs to be room for them to laugh, to react, to respond emotionally to the work. Oh, look, I don't think it's a challenge, but I think I think this kind of Pavlovian sort of response of an audience to crap because you think you should is uh, has definitely become overworked, and and it's nice to kind of restrain it. I mean, I feel like it's. It's all it's all orgasm, no foreplay. You know, like it's literally like just keep releasing tension, releasing tension. Why not sit in there and why not try and build build tension, build frisson, build connection with the action, and then release? And I've seen a show where there's been, you know, we've done a couple of extraordinary shows in our history where there's been like a standing ovation in the middle of the show, like the audience is left to its feet, and. It's an extraordinary moment where the audience has no choice but to, but to release. And that's a beautiful thing, right? But it's not a beautiful thing when the audience does it because they're dutifully following essentially like the, their version of a laugh track, you know, like an episode of Friends or something where they're just kind of clapping because you rhythmically and tell them to and stick your arms in the air. So we've tried to maintain that kind of integrity through this show. Right, we try to maintain a sense that our release and tension, dramatic build, structure are all part of an ongoing conversation with the audience, and we don't want them to applaud because they think they should. We want them to applaud because it's the right moment dramatically and for them in their journey. But there's definitely more applause and laughter than there you might hear at you know the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, for instance. Yeah, if we're talking about uh, dutifully following to uh, pick up on the words you just used about the audience. What's it been like working with an existing intellectual uh, property and having to uh, work with Ardman to ensure that you are respecting what they want the show to be as opposed to having the freedom that you would often have in a, in a more traditional circus show to make everything yourself? Yeah, look, it's absolutely... Uh, every every director and every creative thinks that we are kind of you know geniuses, and then when you're you're confronted with 
the, the brutal logic and kind of clarity of somebody else's vision. And particularly in this case, somebody, you know, they see things very differently because they work in animation. So things like relative heights are really important. You know, how big is a Sean character versus a human character? Things that we just wouldn't normally notice. And that process is pretty tough. You know, like when we were making, when we were in dress rehearsals and previews, we'd be filming the show at night sending it through with notes overnight, waking up at five in the morning, having a one to two hour conference with them, going through every detail. But the show is immeasurably better for it. And of course, what you discover is you're not a genius. You're part of a creative process and a collaborative adventure. And they know how their product tells stories much better than we do. So I've learned a huge amount. Um, But, you know, the example that I use is that there there are 48 uh, handcrafted eyes on the, in the costumes on the show, and each one of them is individually approved by Ardman. Um, and some of them are, you know, can you move that half a millimetre to the left, the left eye? It sounds like an intense process, but and it also given that the the stage show that we're talking about, uh, Sean the Sheep's Circus Show, is blending, as you've said, it's blending animation, it's blending live acrobatics, it's bringing in film elements as well as the live work in the theatre. So there's a lot to juggle, but... Uh, from what I've heard of word of mouth, I'm seeing the show myself tonight. It feels like uh, this collaboration between Ardman and Circa has been hugely successful. Look, I'm really happy with it. And I, and I, I am a very harsh judge of my own work and often feel like it falls short. There are definitely things that, of course, you know, you look at and think, oh, if we could just get another couple of weeks in a rehearsal room, I'd change that. But for a show that I think takes the audience on a journey is much more theatre than our normal kind of dark space and much and reaches across audience ages and mixes genres. I think it's wildly successful. Like I think actually it's a work of it's a it's a very, very strong work with great kind of artistry and integrity through it. And that's that's because everyone we had a, a really fantastic creative and performing team as well as production, it's a much bigger build than Circa. I mean, you've never seen a Circa show with a set. You know, spoiler alert, like, it's actually got a set. And that's kind of, that was amazing. Like, we oh, had it in rehearsal. I've, I, have seen a, I have seen a Circa show with a set. It was one wall at the back of the stage. Yeah, well, this is, this is, this is, a, you'll see this. And it's got <laughs> things in it. It's got props and it's got animation and it's got, you know, like, it's kind of, it's a totally different kind of world that we're in. And so to, to kind of pull that off, I think, is, is uh, for me, has been a real, uh, is a real pleasure. I, I'm really happy with the way it's turned out. I, could, I couldn't be happier. My guest is Jaron Lifshitz, the Artistic Director of Circa, the globally acclaimed Brisbane-based circus company. Circa and Ardman's Shaun the Sheep's Circus Show uh, is showing at the Regent Theatre, 191 Collins Street, Melbourne, uh, previewing, uh, I think, what, did you preview last night, opening tonight, running through until the 18th of April? Absolutely, until Sunday. We previewed last night and tonight, and, uh, and today, and open tonight. So, greatly looking forward to it. Very much looking forward to seeing the show myself as well. You're on. Thank you so much for joining us. If you want a book to see Sean the Sheep, the uh, Sean the Sheep's Circus show, go to seanthesheepcircus.com.au. You're on Lifshitz. Thanks so much for joining me. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. 
Last year during lockdown, you probably interacted a little bit more with your neighbours than normal. We were all kind of stuck at home and perhaps more conscious of the world around us. But my next guest, rather than necessarily paying attention to her kind of human neighbours, paid attention to her tiny neighbours, weeds, bugs, pebbles, the roots of trees, all the, the objects that fill our everyday lives, but perhaps which we aren't always aware of. I'm joined on the line by artist Kyoko Imazu to talk about her new exhibition, Mayflies and Stars, which is on out at Artspace at Realm in Ringwood. Kyoko, good morning and thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So your art is exquisite. I'm going to say that at the start. I've been looking at samples <laughs> of it online. Um, you were work with uh, a range of mediums, including printmaking and, and bookbinding and more. But here you're focusing very much on paper cut and shadow play. And so these very, very fine, detailed works cut out of paper and showing, um, the, I guess, so much of life, the things that we don't think about, insects and flowers and the root systems of trees stretching below the ground, the birds in the branches of trees and so much more. It strikes me this must be very laborious, painstaking work to cut out and create. It is, but um, it's also kind of meditating as well. Um, And most of the work, actually all of the work were made during the lockdown pretty much last year. So it was, I guess, my way of, you know, working, being able to work from home, um, not requiring too much space. Um, and, you know, as we all probably did, we went for a lot of neighborhood walks as well, you know, and noticing a lot of different things that we never noticed before, before the lockdown. I mean, I've always been interested in small insects and you know, um, rocks and things like that, because I used to collect them as a child. Um, but um, I thought it was a great time to focus on those little things that we don't pay attention to normally. Well, certainly, uh, I'm sure like many people in lockdown, I became very, very familiar with my uh, two local parks when we could only go outside for an hour and no more than five kilometres from home, a couple of the, the, the larger parks near me. I spent a lot of time in to the point where I got quite bored of walking around them after a while. Um, but one of the things that looking at some of your work, the fact that uh, tiny insects, the reflections of uh, in water, uh, the you've caught the movement of the wind in leaves, for example, by cutting them out of... Is it... Uh, how stiff is the paper you're using? Because these are very intricate pieces of uh, of art that you've cut out of them. Yes. So paper is about um, 200, 180 to 200 GSM. But it's not too thick, but it's not too thin like like um, rice paper or anything like that. Because if it's too thin, um, I've noticed that I it's easy to break, especially when I'm, in, um, when I'm cutting tiny details. Um, papers do need to be a little bit more robust than, say, photocopy papers, for example. And are you then, given that the shadows of the work are, are I guess, incorporated into the exhibition, uh, are these works freestanding? Have you sandwiched them between glass so that the light can be then projected through them? What what can people see? Yeah, so in the exhibition, I'm actually at the gallery right now installing... (laughs) because it's going to be available to public from Saturday. Um, 
So as you enter the exhibition, you see a series of paper cutworks in frames, and they are um, framed in a way that it looks almost like paper, paper cut is floating in the middle of the frame because I've got amazing framers who can do such magic. Um, and so that um, it can cast shadows of my paper cut onto the back of the frame. And that's one part of the gallery. But as you go into the gallery, at the back section of the gallery, you see shadow installation. Um, so there are lots of small insects and plants cut out, hanging from shadow stands, a series of sh shadow stands um, with different kind of torches casting shadows onto the wall. Um, so that's, a, I guess, you know, two kind of different works you see in the exhibition. Now, I'm curious to know how long it takes to make an individual piece. Uh, looking at, for example, uh, the, the work called Earthly Delight, which is effectively one plant uh, with, its, with its roots and, uh, and leaves and branches spreading out, but then dozens, if not more, of, of tiny ants and insects and spider webs and flying insects and so much more. Uh, including skeletons as well, which seem to crop up in a, a few of the artworks yes. as a, a reminder of our mortality. But how long does it take you to carefully cut out and create each individual piece? So that's probably the most common question I receive. <laughs> so um, usually, depending, of course, you know, it depends on the design and depends on the size of the paper cut, um, Excluding the designing time, um, just cutting alone would take me about um, maybe 25 to 30 hours. So it is fairly, but, you know, as you said, it's, it's labour intensive then, but also, as you acknowledged earlier, a very meditative practice as well. Well, I guess, you know, we all have our own <laughs> craziness, I think. Some people think I'm crazy, but, um, you know, I have patience for this, but not, you know, not for other things, I guess. Now, the exhibition that, uh, as you said, that you're installing uh, today, Mayflies and Stars at Art Space at Realm on the Maroondah Highway in Ringwood. I mentioned skeletons, and there are several works that uh, skeletons are featured or piles of skulls. Uh, and I'm presuming this is uh, a reference in some way to the mayflies of the title, which are such short-lived insects that once they, once they get to the, the adult phase of their life, they literally only live for a few hours, maybe a day or two at most. So you're kind of acknowledging yep. that the fleeting nature of life in the work. Yeah, so as you said, the mayflies are known to have you know, such a brief life after they get to the adult stage. Um, but the actual exhibition, um, I guess, inspiration, starting point of this exhibition started off um, with a poem um, called I Was Born by this Japanese poet, Hiroshi Yoshino. He was, you know, he was active, you know, in 1930s, 40s, 50s kind of time. Um, so it talks about... Um, I guess, you know, his poem talks about, from a point of view of a child, of a child's father explaining what adult mayflies are and their physical characteristics and their brief life um, as an adult. Um, and this father makes comparison to his wife, so this child's mother, who sacrificed her life so that the child may have his. Um, so it's 
you know, I, I, I just couldn't stop thinking about that poem. It's a pretty famous poem that you would find in a Japanese textbook, um, sort of a, you know, junior high, you know, high school textbook. Um, you know, at first, at first, you know, when you think about mayflies, people might think their life is quite tragic because their lives are extremely brief um, with only one purpose of life, you know, and that's reproduction. Um, but in a, this maddening, intense cycle of life, it's almost like, to me, the essence, very essence of life is condensed in that tiny, fragile body. And I just felt quite overwhelmed when I thought about it, you know, especially last year as well. You know, we are kind of faced with our own sort of mortality and everybody else's mortality, you know. Um, and that, you know, this reproduction and mother's sort of, I guess, feeling towards the children is like the simplest truth of life, yet I just project so much complex feeling onto it. And so when I see this fragile body of mayflies flying in such a delicate way, um, but their life is like such a full of crazy energy and, you know, somehow really beautiful to me, you know, beautiful and miraculous. Um, you know, that sort of, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. So the vision really came from this idea. So the idea of, Yet including skeletons is, you know, obvious, pretty obviously, you know, um, looking at our mortality, but also, you know, you know, just getting to the simplest essence of life, I think. Now, other uh, elements that appear in your work, I've mentioned branches and tree roots. Uh, other pieces include uh, insect life in, in great detail, whether underground or climbing on the, the leaves of trees, uh, a child sailing a boat and uh, the, the reflections of trees in the water. All of this cut out carefully by hand from uh, in, in paper. Uh, and then, as we've said, the exhibition also featuring shadows as well. The exhibition itself is called Mayflies and Stars, and you mentioned uh, the the poem that inspired it by a, a Japanese poet. Kyoko, when did you yourself leave Japan? Was and I, I understand that was to further your artistic practice and career. Oh well, I left Japan in two thousand two, so uh, right after high school. So I finished my high school in Japan, and I came to Australia not to become an artist, um, just came to study English. And you know, one thing that's the others, and I just end up being an artist, and I'm still here. Um, but I guess, you know, I'll, because I'm here, I guess the sense of my sense of identity as a Japanese, I think, became even stronger, I think, because I become more, more, more of an outsider, I think. Um, and I guess, you know, I often look back at my childhood in Japan, um, what I did and, you know, how um, I was interacting with my family, because all my family is still back in Japan, so... Hmm. Yeah, so, you know, I wasn't really, um, so it's been a while, but um, it's sort of a being an artist is not the reason why I immigrated to Australia. But it's certainly, uh, I'm very glad that you have developed this artistic practice because the work, uh, as we've said, is beautiful. Mayflies and Stars is the exhibition opening from the 17th of April through until the 27th of June. Art Space at Realm, 175 Maroondah Highway, Ringwood. Uh, and you can the website to check out for more details is www.artsinmaroondah.com.au. And if you want to learn more about Kyoko Imazu's practice, you can go to her website, uh, which is uh, kyokoimazu.com, and you'll see there examples of her work, or you could check out her Instagram feed as well. Kyoko, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, I hope the exhibition is a great success. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 